0: Welcome to the first in a series, we are calling L&D's Pivot to Performance, in which Guy Wallace and myself, David James, speak with esteemed guests about their own pivot from learning-focused or learning-oriented practice towards a performance focus or performance orientation that more predictably and reliably, let alone efficiently and successfully, achieves demonstrable results for both employees and organizations. Over the next 14 weeks, We will schedule seven sessions each two weeks apart and invite guests that we know have made the pivot and have achieved real results from doing so. We'll invite each guest to share their stories. We'll question them on their approaches and encourage them to share relatable experiences to inspire you to either initiate or enhance your own pivot. We'll also seek opportunities to get you involved too. Now, would you like to add anything at this stage, Guy? Oh,
1: thank you. That was uh, great. This is all about performance.
0: Mm, Great. So uh, perhaps we should start with our introductions, Guy, um, including our own pivot from learning focus to performance focus. So I'll kick us off. Um, so my background is I spent 15 years in house. I'm um, the I think seven or eight years uh, outside now. Uh, but my I suppose the the crux of my um, my experience was that I led LD uh, as well as uh, talent and OD at Disney. That was my uh, my last tenure in house. And um, previous to that, uh, I think like many people, I uh, I became a very skilled trainer. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, I was uh, leading learning and development at a senior level at Disney, that I think that I was experienced, I would uh, experience what this pivot actually meant. And I think my first realization that a pivot was required was in the role uh, at Disney when I was asked to assist in the digital transformation of an entire country. Nobody was talking about learning and nobody cared about the learning. It was all about that country's ability to perform differently in order to achieve different results. But my actual performance came... uh, my, My pivot, sorry, came a little later when helping clients to develop employees that weren't resisting the learning tech anymore. In fact, they were embracing it. And this allowed us to aim at truly affecting performance. And the way that we did this was to find out what they were trying to do, what they weren't able to do quickly or effectively, and ensure that it was surfaced, the help that we developed when it was actually needed. And we saw close to a hundred percent take up and demonstrable change. And this blew apart all the myths uh, that I held around new and novel over useful and timely. And this saw me then evangelize this from here on in. What about you, Guy?
1: Well, thank you, David. Uh, So my story began in 1979 when I joined a small training organization right out of college. I have a radio, TV, film degree. And I was lucky, I was inundated, I was oriented to a performance approach to training or instruction, which we now then call learning and now learning experience design. But uh, I was taught the performance orientation of a guy named Gary A. Rumler, PhD. Uh, He's no longer with us, he uh, passed away back in 2008, but I had a chance to get influenced by his work and his business partner, Prior to 1979, Tom Gilbert, who wrote a stellar book, Human Competence, which is uh, one of the things I was given on day one uh, in my job. I was also given a, a newsletter article from 1970 from Rumler and Gilbert and their organization Praxis, which talked about guidance, which later became known as job aids, which today is known as performance support or workflow learning. And it's, so I've been really focused on a performance orientation. Another thing that I was given on day one was a book by Bob Mager and Peter Pipe on uh, 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 about performance and, uh, and taking that orientation to performance in instruction. So I was one of the lucky ones to get that orientation and to practice uh, throughout my career. I worked at Motorola afterwards where I got a chance to work with Gary Rumler Uh, And then I went out uh, as a consultant and joined a small consulting firm in 82. And I've been able to practice for my clients this performance orientation for instructional systems design, a system of instruction, if you will. Um, So, uh, But that's enough about me. But I did wanna partner with David about this because he has been promoting this pivot to performance, a performance orientation through his podcast series and, and a recent article that he wrote Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that at the end. But uh, we wanted to invite guests, as he said, that are practitioners who aren't going to talk about this in a theoretical way, but are going to talk about how they do this so that that can be shared with you so that you can adopt what you can and adapt the rest. So if I can, I'd like to shift gears here now to talk about our guest today, Dr. Ken Yates from the University of Southern California, where I might add it's 630 in the morning. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for agreeing to do this so so early in your day. But can you start us off with giving us a little bit about your background in L and D before we get into the your specific approaches?
2: Sure, I can, and thank you
1: for inviting me to this uh, inaugural event uh, the L
2: and D series. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be here and to be with everybody today. Uh, Guy, I'm certainly happy that you uh, mentioned college in your introduction because uh, uh, my pathway actually started in college as well. So, you know, I went to college to become a teacher. So, uh, but the uh, that was short-lived because I had a major move from the east coast of the United States to the west coast of the United States, and uh, ended up uh, teaching a little bit, but then was invited to join, um, some individuals in a business. So I, uh, quickly, uh, transformed and from education into business. Interesting though, there's an old phrase about everything I learned, I learned in, you know, in kindergarten sort of thing. Um, that was true to me. So I really thought much of what I learned in becoming a teacher to human performance in businesses. And, and, uh, according to uh, my trajectory uh, and promotions to executive level, I was guess I was successful at it. Um, so I spent most of my adult career in entrepreneurial companies, all types of entrepreneurial companies, where we invented and created uh, new opportunities and working with teams to uh, meet these challenges. Uh, most of my work, um, or much of it, was in media and technology domains, uh, which eventually led me to become a consultant for. The uh, State Department's Agency for International Development in uh, distance learning, um, and uh, rule of when it's called rule of law projects. So I worked in places like Indonesia and uh, Azerbaijan. Actually, spent some time in Afghanistan um, and uh, other countries. So during that time, uh, I began to work uh, at the University of Southern California. First at a Center for scholarly Technology, and then with Richard Clark uh, at the Center for Cognitive Technology as a research associate um, at the Rossier School of Education. Um, So shortly after uh, uh, working with Dick and the research and learning designs and cognitive task analysis, I actually started teaching uh, learning motivation and instructional design, uh, the primary components of LMD to uh, graduate students at the Rossier School. Uh, I then became a director of evaluation for the school to secure national and state accreditation that was up for renewal. Um, And following that became associate dean for professional development. Uh, More recently, I stepped down from that administrative assignment to focus on teaching and chairing graduate dissertations, doctoral dissertations and master's capstones and uh, to conduct research in artificial intelligence and machine learning in educational settings with our current center, it's called the Center for Human Applied Reasoning and the Internet of Things, or fondly known around USC, which has a Hellenistic, a Greek theme commonly known as chariot. So uh, that's a lot of what I do. Uh, at uh, at the time. And uh, it's, it's great to be here to share all this experience I've had.
1: Well, thank you for that. Can you share with us any aha moment where you realize that uh, perhaps a, a training or teaching on what I would refer to as topics, where you made that shift to a task and output kind of orientation, where you really began to think about the terminal performance requirements of your of your students or your target audiences. Can you can you share with us about that? Sure. Um, you know, I really do trace it back to
2: the time uh, when I was working as a consultant for the State Department's Agency for International Development. So many lessons learned as I traveled uh, the world to uh, institute uh, you know training programs and to work with. Uh, uh, faculty. It was, uh, in particular, uh, in Indonesia, they wanted to create a, uh, a partnership with two United States uh, law schools to teach um, intellectual property and to bankruptcy law with all five of the uh, campuses of the University of Indonesia. And so it was at a very exciting time where we had to actually figure out whether or not we had the uh, technology uh, capacity to do distance learning, and at the time, it was not what we have today at the internet. It was, uh, uh, those of you who might remember, ISDN lines and uh, good old phone lines and things like that. So It was quite a challenge, but we were able to uh, put together and actually built our own learning management system when we found that the ones that are available in the United States actually were offline for service in those days in the nighttime, which was the daytime in Indonesia. So beyond that, um, we successfully launched this whole uh, distance learning and law program. Uh, Very shortly thereafter, the instructors, the law professors came to me and said, this looks great. We want to use all the features that you've built into it, but uh, show us how to do that. How do you teach in this distance learning environment? And I said, okay. And then I'm thinking in my mind, everything I learned, I learned as a teacher way back in college. I found that was very limited. Okay, I needed a more solid background. Um, it, it didn't go, my general background in education and teaching didn't go far enough or deep enough in the theories and practice of high-performing organizations that we were seeking to be as a distance learning with the State Department, so I sought out something new and better. That's when I became familiar with human performance technology model of Dick Clark and Fred Sd's, uh, represented in the book called uh, "Turning Research into Results" um, at USC. And I found my home at USC where I really this really resonated with me. Um, the The framework of setting goals and then diagnosing and achieving these goals through a Framework solidly grounded in the research uh, literature, uh, educational learning, motivation, and organizational research really resonated with me. And uh, Dick Clark's use of CTA, which it turns out I was also doing a version of CTA because in order to develop trainings, I had to find out how all these uh, people use the information and, and a usability sort of study. We were much asking the same questions. Uh, Dick and I found out, so we that resonated with our partnership as well in CTA. So I, I applied all that I learned in my consulting work on a daily basis and found significant results. And ever since, I've been proponent of human performance technology, cognitive task analysis, and I've taught it to hundreds of students at USC.
1: Thank you. Uh, so CTA, cognitive task analysis, for our audiences is central to how you approach doing uh, instructional analysis. It is uh, also called discovery. uh, I believe in in Europe, David and I have conversations about this, some of our language differences. Um, But can you share with us, uh, before we go deep into cognitive task analysis or any other type of analysis that you practice in your work, Uh, Can you kind of give us a quick overview of that? What is CTA and uh, uh, your other approaches?
2: Certainly. Um, uh, CTA or Cognitive Task Analysis or David's Discovery. See, I learned something new uh, by doing these uh, webinars. This is great. But as a uh, needs analysis, you know, our whole workplace, our whole nature of work, has changed over the last century, where it's now really mostly mental work that we do. We uh, have machines and robots and and other things to do much of the work that we used to do by strictly by hand. So um, uh, this workplace changed then. Um, we used to be able to capture behavioral actions of people and replicate them in training and say, do it like this. You know, That's the old apprentice model. And then uh, we could replicate it in machine types of uh, assembly lines like uh, our assembly line of the Model T Ford in the early part of the century. But the real issue is, is that when we're making decisions and analyses in our workplace these days, and that's if you're a doctor and you're, Uh, analyzing what you see in a scan, or if you're analyzing what you see in a report as a data analysis person, um, um, or just making decisions in the workplace, you are really engaging in more mental work than you are in physical work, okay? And so we have to capture, if we're gonna replicate this expertise and incorporate it into our trainings and our instruction, we need to capture that expertise. And our research has showed that up to, uh, that experts actually omit up to 70% of the critical information a novice needs to replicate that expertise, expert performance. Um, Much to uh, to, the, that that disturbs my students very much when I tell them during a lecture that I'm actually leaving out 70% of what they need, but um, uh, we will try to mitigate that. But if you can if you can interview and have an active listening conversation with multiple experts, you can aggregate and you can tend to reverse that seventy percent and capture seventy percent of the expertise if you can aggregate it, uh, and that's what cognitive task analysis does is, is conducting semi-structured interviews to capture expertise um, of individuals performing uh, difficult or complex tasks and solving difficult problems. And then aggregating that into uh, a usable form to be able to incorporate into training or into, Uh, you know, if you think about it, the last ATM you went to and got money out of a machine, it had to be programmed, and it was programmed as close as it could to replicating a human teller at a bank. and That was captured by various forms of CTA, what are people thinking when they walk up to a teller and say, may I please cash a check or whatever the process is? So CTA is important to do that. Um, As also, CTA, if we are engaging in human performance, when we do find that there is a procedural gap, if you will, in knowledge, then we need to conduct the CTA. So we're training people on that procedural uh, gap uh, with expertise and not just the uh, so-called expertise of the trainer, because then we might once again be omitting the critical information 70% of the critical information. So CTA is part of an overall human performance technology needs assessment and which under the framework that I have been working with um, captures uh, what are the knowledge components, what are the motivational components and what are the organizational factors that all influence human performance in the workplace. Uh, And that is probably the unique part of, uh, of what we do. It has various names, I call it human performance technology. Um, Clark's version of it is often called uh, gap analysis, because it can be adapted to any sort of situation in which the desired state is less than the existing state and you have a gap that you want to uh, make up and achieve. So that's basically the, uh, the high level.
1: Thank you. So the the w- 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 this is one of the issues I think that's uh, prevalent in the industry, and I've ha- heard uh, Dick Clark talk about this. That uh, you know most trainers are subject matter experts or master performers, and and they've automated the seventy percent of the knowledge that a novice needs, and maybe they can do the job, but they can't explain it to others. And this is one of the issues that I think when you have subject matter experts, SMEs create content, they're most likely gonna leave out some critical content that they've automated. And so they can't tell you, and the job of uh, of somebody employing a cognitive task analysis is to help extract that. And you're doing that by talking to a number of experts uh, because as I think it's been explained to me is that each expert omits a different seventy percent. So when you're going after them, you're going to basically take a take from everybody and compare and contrast it and build a a more holistic uh, approach to all the tasks. But but so, so this is an issue for us when we when we all deal with SMEs most likely, and that's problematic if you're dealing with one SME and you're relying on one SME. You're likely to inadvertently omit much of the instructional content that's needed, and and what I heard you say also is that this has a lot to do with the decision making, the behavioral tasks, the physical tasks that people are doing. We can see those, we can count those, but the cognitive tasks, those are kind of uh, covert. We can't see them, we can't count them, we don't know what people are thinking, and that's one of the goals of instructional designers or learning experience designers is to help understand what are the thinking processes that go along in parallel with the behavioral tasks. So thank you for that overview. But can we now go deep? Can you-
0: Sorry, Guy. Can I just uh, uh, can I just sure. ask one question? Just just on that because we've had a, a question, uh, a great question from uh, from uh, one of the uh, the participants, uh, uh, Alen, um, who's asked, "Would you be able to share the source of the seventy percent stat? Where did that? Where was what? What study is that? Um, which is great critical thinking on the part of Alen. There.
2: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yes, these are are um, studies that uh, we have conducted uh, in the medical area. The, um, uh, the studies that we've conducted also in educational area as well, um, could studies in the military, uh, in a variety of tasks in the military, um, such as leadership or counseling um, and mentoring and things like that. So um, uh, there is also previous studies that have been done in the literature, uh, in um, uh, computer Uh, and troubleshooting. And so it's the the literature is quite a number of of studies that all indicate that uh, experts omit. Um, I think our rigorous way of doing CTA, by the way, um, my own studies uh, have been in CTA and knowledge elicitation in general, there's over 104 different types of knowledge elicitation now, CTA is like one category of those, but then there's only about five CTA um, approaches that actually work that have evidence for them and I can pro- I can provide some literature to our uh, viewers, listeners today to uh, to support that and um, the CTA approach that we use actually um, seeks to capture the action steps and decision steps required for a task and the concepts, the processes, and principles that are required to even understand and begin to adapt the, uh, the CTA uh, procedural steps. Uh, and the key is in aggregating. Uh, there are some studies about how many uh, experts are needed. A challenge of ND back in 1994, I believe, that's uh, a good Google, and I can provide some of these sites as well of of conduct conducted a study in which they determined that uh, in a computer diagnosis of computer programming, about um, uh, four about four to five. Those kind of a range depending upon the task. Experts are needed to uh, to capture the uh, most of the steps that were required for this compute, this particular task. After that number, the graph became, began to level off on the new. Information that was um, collected from the experts. So there was a point of what they call the diminishing returns. Okay, so in our own studies of this in the medical area, we work over at Keck Medical School with surgeons, anesthesiologists, um, nursing, etc. We have found that it takes three to four uh, subject matter experts to capture the 70% before you begin to diminish the returns and a diminished return, we would classify as less than 10% new information about this task and all that. So, um, uh, again, I have lots of, lots of information and resources that I can provide to, uh, this, uh, table. we'll share
1: those in the uh, show notes on the YouTube video. Um, and, uh, but but there's a lot of this has been published before, and you have written about this, and Dick Clark has written about this, and there are uh, a number of studies that are referenced in some of these uh, uh, articles that are available, so we will share those. Um, so, Ken, can, can, you, can you, you know, so where do you start? You you meet with one subject matter expert, and you're going to talk with three or four or five or something, and so can you can you outline for us a little bit about the process?
2: Well actually, it starts if you don't mind me backing up a little bit Please. it actually starts much sooner than that because first you have to determine whether or not you had a learning need in your analysis and human performance so what we um, have learned in our experience and and, and also uh, working not only with clients my own clients but Literally, all the hundreds of students that I have worked with and taught this method to a human performance technology or uh, gap analysis, if you will, um, uh, all have, in effect, been clients because they are trying to do case studies of performance in their own workplace. So they come and if, whether they're doing a the dissertation or even a class paper, we teach this, you know, we, we can teach this in in one class, or we can teach it over a course of six months for a dissertation, depends upon how much detail. But human, prof- this whole uh, framework really starts with people's problems that they have in the organization. And the most interesting thing, and this is a pivot point, <laughs> is that you have to really decide what's a real problem, because most people will come to you and say, "We need training. That's our problem." I said, "Wait, well, no, no, training is not a problem. Training is a solution." Okay. So you get constant. you know, we have a problem where we, we want to be first in our in our in our brand, among all the other brands and whatever. I said, "That's great, but that's not particularly a problem. That's like more like a vision than a mission." <laughs> so what's the problem? And this is for people we find that they can articulate first a problem. So often, we will skip over and say, ah, let's let's ask a question. If this problem were solved, what goal would be achieved? Let's say you didn't have a problem. What goal would it be achieved? Well, we would get more widgets out the door, or we would get more reports on time. We would get whatever. I said, that's your goal, okay? And they go, oh my goodness, that's an aha moment. So many people don't realize that they're really asking the wrong question or on Monday morning in all your staff meetings discussing the wrong thing. And it's the enlightened person who will walk in and say, hey, let's stop talking about all our problems and let's stop thinking about our only approach is throwing more money. Let's stop and ask if this problem didn't exist, what goal would we achieve? And then let's decide then how we, Break this goal down into who does what to achieve this goal, and everybody will absolutely stops in the room, and this is good because we want to think about that. And so the second big problem is is then okay, how do we approach diagnosing? Now there's many ways of approaching uh, diagnosing performance problems, and there's many, 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 many frameworks. The reason why the the one the um, uh, that uh, that we use as GAP analysis human performance technology is that it's both diagnostic and prescriptive because it's based in the evidence of learning and motivation and organizational theory and that evidence, you can sit there and take the theory and say, according to this theory, which has been tested for 50 years or more, okay, according to this theory, this would be a reason for people not choosing to do what they're supposed to do at work and you can go ask them, do they value doing it? Are they confident they can do it? And if the answer is no, then the prescription is give them messages of value, give them confidence by practice, and that's how you're gonna solve your human performance problem. So all of a sudden we come up with this framework, a very simple but elegant framework that that says, to achieve all our individual goals, which cascade from the organizational goal of producing more widgets, more reports, more whatever? We have to look at things from: Does everybody know have all the knowledge and skills to do things? Do they have the motivation, which means the value and persisting uh, to choose to persist and apply new knowledge to solve novel problems, and um, you know, and and exercise the mental effort, which is. If you have something new, go out and find how to do it. You know, go and get new new information. So all of these have underlying constructs, psychological constructs, and this KMO framework, which we fondly call it around our place, um, is a very simple, elegant framework that has two sides of the coin. Which is, I'm going to diagnose with this framework, and when I actually identify a problem in knowledge, motivation or organizational resources and culture, then I know exactly what kind of recommendations to make based upon the same theories that are used in diagnosing. And that's the power and the elegance of that whole framework. It is within that framework that when we determine, ah, we have a knowledge problem, we don't know, we don't know some conceptual knowledge about what things, the what and the why we do things and we don't have the when and the how knowledge, procedural knowledge. It's when we identify that by asking people real knowledge questions, not do they think they know, but real knowledge questions, and uh, or observe their performance and ask them, "Is that something that you really know how to do?" And they say, "Not really. You know, I'm just following someone else's thing." That's when you want to now engage cognitive task analysis to capture expertise so you can replicate that expertise and and bridge that knowledge gap, if you will, sort of thing um, that's uh you know that's that's primarily it in a nutshell. there's steps to all of that, of course um, but I would say that the real issue. Is starting out correctly, which is identifying the real problem, so to speak, and that real problem is not is really stated as not achieving a goal, and then you can break the goal down. You know, so let me stop there.
1: <laughs> in, in, in a moment here, I'll ask you if you can give us a little case study to give us a, uh, an idea about you know how long does it take, and who's involved, and what are the basic steps.
0: But David do we have any uh questions? We do. Yeah, we do. Like so, share? Yeah, so can you uh, you you mentioned there about uh, about solving problems. That 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 really resonates. Uh, I think Nick Shackleton Jones says, you know, you go where the concern is, you know, people aren't able to do a thing, they're not they don't know a thing which is preventing them from achieving what they what they're in an organization to do. But Kayla's asked um uh can you can you speak uh, to how you may apply this framework to an opportunity as opposed to a problem. And I don't know whether that is in the way that you've just described that, that you, you, um, uh, you talk about what it is that, you know, what the goal is there, or, or perhaps there's something, uh, there's something different there. If it's not directly a problem,
2: um, that's a wonderful question. Thank you very much for it. Um, so when, uh, uh, when Clark and Estes first um, introduced this framework in their, in their book, Turning Research and Results, um, and uh, I started picking up on it, learning it, learning it directly from Clark and, and then teaching it to others, which is a great way of learning things. <clears throat> in the university environment, it was often uh, critiqued. Uh, rightfully so, that this is a kind of a deficit viewpoint that you're talking about. Gap, okay, yeah, and it is because it's a performance improvement. That means that we're not performing as well as we want to, and that's kind of a deficit model sort of thing. And um, uh, and deficit models don't resonate with everybody. You know, it's um, uh, if you go and. In Google, gap analysis, you probably end up with 14, at least last time I did, was 14 million different hits on from Google and gap analysis. Yeah. But uh, I started thinking about this and opening up the thinking that if you have a goal, that goal may not exist. So you have no progress towards the goal. So the so-called human performance technology system here or gap analysis, if you will, if you have something innovative, something new that you want to do, a new program, a new product, a new process that you want to introduce into your organization, and you can state it as a goal, okay, then your gap, if you will, is 100% because you haven't even started it yet, right? So now the question is slightly different. What's the goal? And then what are the knowledge factors, motivation factors, and organizational factors, and culture, the all important culture, which I always do the big circle around because culture, who is it, Drucker or somebody, culture eats strategies for yeah. breakfast or something. So you're, everything works within a cultural framework. Okay. Uh, two ways the culture influencing our performance in individuals and our individuals changing and in affect changing the culture, and all of our learning has to be resonate with all the different cultures of your learners as well. Try to teach something differently in each one of the countries represented here today, and you are going to have to use different languages as I have found out and the difference between lo- lovely stories about cultural errors made in different countries so, this KMO framework can now be applied to diagnosing what is it that we need in terms of knowledge, motivation, and organizational resources, policies, procedures, and culture to achieve this goal, which we haven't even started doing. And then once you can identify these factors, now you can begin to seek out expertise in the learning part of it. And you can actually seek out, has anybody else done something similar? You can see what messages of success and attribution to success, etc. So it doesn't stop there. Yes, there's more folks, you know, um, as the TV uh, people used to say at late night television. There's more. You can actually then when you think about as goals and then what KMO framework is to achieve those goals, you can now use it not only as an innovation model, not only as an improvement model, but also you can look at it and say, hey, we can use this as an evaluation model. So if we say, if we can identify what the goals of the organization are, and now we say there's everybody, well, the second question is, to what degree are we achieving these goals? That's the evaluation starting point. Uh, Now we go back into the KMO analysis of what it takes to take the 80% up to 95%, et cetera. And that's now an evaluation model using the same framework. And then finally, if you have, once again, a goal and the KMO framework, Knowledge Motivation Organization Framework, you can sit there and say, you know, we don't know really what we wanna do. There's other companies, other organizations doing something very well we want to take their best practices and see if we can apply them. So now we can use the same model as a promising practices model, where we say, let's take a verified, high-performing organization doing something similar to us, and let's see what goals did they set, and then what knowledge, motivation and organizational factors influence their high achievement of those goals and now let's see if we can adapt them to our culture and adapt them to our staff. So now we're learning from others using that same framework and it's all encompassing under the umbrella of human performance technology, if you will. And again, CTA becomes part of that for the knowledge and skills component of it. So we have now proposed to personally for me and my students and my dissertation, the capstone students, et cetera, we say, you can take this model And if you find value in it, you can take this framework as a conceptual and methodological framework, both types of frameworks, and use it to improve performance or do a case study improving performance or capturing what high-performing organizations actually do or evaluate or innovate something brand new. And I've had students do it in all categories and have found it extremely useful. Thank you. That was a long-winded response.
1: I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. So I think that people who are interested in, you know, it's, it's the gap analysis applies to problem-centered issues, uh, appreciative inquiry, kinds of things where you just want to make an improvement, where things aren't a problem, but you want to make even more improvement. You can still use this framework to say, it basically depends on, well, what's your goal? And where, what's the gap between where you current state and the future state and looking at that?
0: Yes. Uh, Dave, are there any other questions that uh, you want to share? Ken? Yeah, there, there there are plenty more. Uh, how do you want to do this? Do you want to carry on through the questions now? Or um, did you want to uh, guide the conversation? Uh, I, I,
1: I wanted to make sure we got to some of the questions. We're not going to get to the, all of them for sure. But uh, so, Ken, can you give us a little case study of an application here to give people, you know, does this take forever in a day? Or how quickly can this be done? What are some of the steps and cycle times associated with the steps? Well, the um,
2: there's really there's there's two parts again, but I'll try to be brief this time. I promise. Uh, There's two parts to it. Let's take take the human performance framework part, okay, and then let's take the CTA part, okay. Uh, The human performance, uh, the time it takes to do human performance technology using the framework. It really varies um, depending upon the amount of energy you put towards it and the receptivity of your stakeholders and things like that. Uh, I have taught this as a sample class, in fact, uh, in in 50 minutes to a group of people who are considering, and say, and then challenge them the next day to go to the workplace and do exactly what we just talked about for the last 50 minutes, and. The reports I would get back from emails is my goodness, it works. And for those I said who are not going to the workplace the next day, try it at home. If you have a family member who you set a goal, who controls the TV tonight? Okay, I mean, this is silly, right? But then try these questions, these series of questions, and all of a sudden you'll see, wow, okay. So these things actually work. That's my point, and I get many, many of people who graduate as doctors of education who go into the workplace, who come back in all different kinds—not only, you know, um, formal educational, but informal as well—who come back and say, "My goodness, it this works. This works." So the the time it takes to do a so-called Diagnosis of human performance using the KMO framework can be literally be. I know this sounds dramatic, but it could be minutes. But if you're in a more formal organization and that formal organization leadership not only in to this, then um, you can do that really rapidly because they're going to get the cooperation of, of sending out. Um, you know, knowledge assessments to people. Do you know how to do things? What is your goal that you have for your department? What's your personal goal that you have for you to achieve your department? You know, do you value this? Do you attribute success to your own efforts? Do you have confidence you can do your work every day? You can send these out very quickly, okay? Just a framework is very clear, and when you get it back, then you can begin to institute what we all do um, uh, commonly under the word training and human resources. Human development, talent development, more importantly, the overall talent development. So it can be done very rapidly. The whole human performance. Okay. Now, having said that, and um, by the way, I've had people do case studies in less in of their dissertation, plus writing their dissertation, et cetera, et cetera. There's all this other stuff you do, but they have done it with less than a year. And some people have actually done the nuts and bolts of human performance. In, um, in, in actually less than six months, but, you know. Um, uh, but it can be done in less than six days and six hours if you really have buy-in, so to speak. You only ask the questions and get the answers, and then you know what to do, okay. CTA, um, CTA is a little bit more complex because you have to identify what the task is that you want, Difficult task or complex task, and then you need to find experts. So not everybody is an expert just because they perform the task. You want people who are acknowledged either by peers or by results or by data as being an expert, and um, then you need two, you need two, three, or possibly four of them. And then you need to go out and interview them on how they do this task, which can be time consuming. The initial interview can take an hour, an hour and a half, or two hours, depending upon the complexity of the task. And then you need to take that and distill that interview into here are the steps you told me, the action steps. And more importantly, because they're more automated and non conscious, the decision steps you're making mentally and try to lay that out, and you want to get them to verify or do what we call member check, if you will, to verify it. And then you have to aggregate it. So this is very time-consuming. I will admit that. Conducting cognitive task analysis. And it's been known for, uh, I think it was Bob Hoffman, way back in the early 80s, who basically said that CTA, uh, although demonstrated to be highly effective, um, in terms of using those results for training and performance, um, is the bottleneck of task analysis for training, because it takes resources and time to do and access to experts. Which is which is why my research enthusiasm is to try to use some of the tools of artificial intelligence and machine learning to automate the process uh, of conducting CTA, where you can literally interview you know, people concurrently and aggregate the results using machine learning. So that's another project of mine, which I can talk a lot about. Um, so the CTA does take time, but I, what I, again, I learned this through uh, teaching and through practice that you have different levels of CTA. And if you don't have time to do the full complete CTA, which may take, 30 days or something by the time you get access to experts, then at least you do a level up and say, go to experts and say over the phone, Zoom, whatever, here's this task. Tell me the main steps that you would do or the process that you would do to complete this task. Break it down for me. So now you're getting, you know, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10 or 12, whatever. Don't put a limit on it or any number, but you're getting what these main tasks are. As organizing slots to then be able to ask questions of people, of saying, here's the first thing that the main task that you do, or the first stage of the process. Let's go in detail of how you do that, what kind of decisions you make to do it. And that's particularly helpful because you find out whether or not people are leaving out or omitting some of the very obvious main steps that you have to do. And uh, for example, in in surgery, we did, a, we, we did one particular medical task, and everybody was telling us exactly how to do this procedure in surgery that's done every day, day in and day out. But they were, everybody omitted the first main step, which was to put a gown and gloves on and sterilize yourself. They were just assuming that. They assumed everybody knew that. But if you had novices, they wouldn't know that. If you're teaching new people how to do this, you have to do the proper uh, <laughs> proper preparation to do the procedure. So these are the kind of things that get revealed. Um, so you can conduct this so-called CTA, not a full CTA, but a so-called levels of CTA in which something is better than not conducting CTA at all. I mean, so sort of, I guess, and we've got, Books that have been written about task analysis, importance, and in instructional design, books and books written about it, and the fact that not very many people do it. And, and that percentage is probably very, very low of actually doing task analysis for your development of your instructional design for training. And, but we say so if you can't do the full thing, you must do at least some of these higher level task analysis and then ask the question. Tell me some of the major decisions you have to make before and during this thing, and more importantly, what are the some of the big problems you encounter by novices? And so you begin to focus in on other parts of this without doing all the full interviews. And this is again, it's not you know one hundred percent authentic, high fidelity CTA, but does it get you further along in capturing expertise than not doing it at all? Which so many people, you know, um, unfortunately omit that step in their instructional design. You betcha. Okay. Oh, another long-winded response. <laughs> well, thank you for that,
1: David. Can we fill the next five or six minutes with uh, uh, some some questions and try to get some answers from Ken to the? Yeah audience.
0: Answer. Short, short answers. Short answers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, um, we've had Bo ask a couple of questions. Uh, I'll start with, uh, with, with one, first of all, how would you actually distinguish between motivation, uh, and, uh, and Bo would put knowledge, but perhaps we could say capability, someone's ability to actually do the job. And is it true that this distinction is becoming more blurred as high motivation could lead you, um, could lead you to gather, uh, knowledge yourself. What with access to to the internet, Google, YouTube, and also with so much information being put into uh, learning systems these days?
2: Yeah, absolutely, great question. And actually the evidence says that uh, that motivation accounts for up to 40 to 50% variance in learning achievement. So in other words, there is a reciprocal two-way arrow between learning constructs and motivation constructs, okay? And so they they work interchangeably. you can't have one without the other, so you have to diagnose uh you have to diagnose um, both learning uh and motivation and I could actually if you wanted me to, I could actually demonstrate that um in a uh a slide that uh I would take me a moment to bring up, but I could actually demonstrate it in a slide that learning and motivation, maybe the thing to do is to actually try to demonstrate it. Um, So here, let me share my screen, I'll do it real fast. And this is, everybody's fortunate because I just taught this the other night. And so here, the constructs of learning, notice the cultural, here is underlying theories, types of knowledge, how that knowledge is exhibited in behavior, um, uh, strategies and whoops! Did I lose the full screen? And then here is the underlying motivation, underlying environmental factors, the underlying psychological factors, how motivated behavior is exhibited, and then how we how experts actually do this themselves, and where you are not an expert. And you can't do it for yourself, we call that instruction and training, right? So, where you you can't do it yourself in metacognitive strategies and expertise, then we have to provide the underlying environmental, uh, environmental or instructional environments to produce that learning and others by scaffolding them. So, but notice the two reciprocal arrows here. And that's the short answer to that. <laughs> long,
0: wonderful question. Okay, wonderful. Uh, I'm th- I'm wondering, guy, with um, with just a few minutes left, whether whether uh, we should wrap up to uh, so, so we can convey the uh, important information about future sessions. What do you think?
1: I, I think so, and uh, I think we have an agreement from Ken that he's going to provide us with some references so that we can share those with people, and uh, in, in covering everything that we've covered here today and. Uh, and uh, we, we've, do we have a bunch of extra questions? I've not been paying attention to that, but if we do yeah, we, do. we share those with Ken and get some answers to that, and we can include those, um, in, uh, beyond the show notes. But, uh, as we publish the YouTube videos on the, the loop site and on my site, mm-hmm. we can share this so that we can help people, you know, begin to decide how to, they can begin to embrace, uh, the approaches that Ken has talked with us about, but. But David, so uh, Ken, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Um, and David, can you can you bring us to a wrap here and share with us where are we going with this series?
0: Uh, what's next? <laughs> Good question. So uh, so next, uh, we have. Um, so to so on our series, we've mentioned that we have uh, uh, seven uh, episodes uh, to share with you, the next one in two weeks today will be with Sebastian Tindall, of Vitality, um, who has successfully made the pivot. And we've had some questions about how do you change um, leadership and stakeholders' minds uh, especially when you don't have a seat at the table, perhaps you haven't changed the culture. Sebastian, I've spoken to on the podcast, he has done this. Uh, Marie Burbage at the Utility Warehouse, she has done this. Uh, you know, every, every one of our guests have uh, have been on this journey, so they've got um, uh, valuable insights to share. That we don't need to wait for the planets to align, and we certainly don't need to wait for permission. Uh, but the the stories to come over the uh, the next few weeks will uh, will shed more light on uh, on these journeys. Uh, as I mentioned. Um, uh, the uh, the next conversation will be with uh, with Sebastian, uh, so we will start promoting that from next week. Uh, this uh, conversation uh, has been recorded, and so we'll make this available on um, the on YouTube. I know that uh, the guy will make this available on um, uh, on his site, and I will also follow up with everybody who's attended and everyone who's registered. Um, so that they've got access to the recording as we will record uh, each of these as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for for uh, for taking the time today and for getting involved in the questions. It's been uh, wonderful to uh, to share this conversation with you and hopefully to to uh, to share some insight into some of the questions and challenges uh, that you have faced. And I know that, uh, that that Guy and I are incredibly grateful uh, that you've been involved as well. And thank you very much, Ken, uh, for uh, for sharing your uh, valuable expertise and experience. With you. us as well as today.
2: Thank you for having me.